Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the podcast. At this point, we're well into season three. We began this season with an episode on the Wampanoag. We followed it up with the early interactions between the Wampanoag and the English. And since then, we've talked about the main colonies, the colonies that became Rhode Island, the colonies that became Connecticut. We've gone to Long Island. We've gone out to Nantucket. We've gone to Martha's Vineyard. Well, now it's time to return to the Wampanoag. An interesting thing to note is that in American history, as it's taught in school anyway, we'll touch upon the Pilgrim Fathers and the Wampanoag and their 1621 treaty, their first Thanksgiving, but then jump ahead five decades to King Philip's War. You are essentially given chapter one and chapter three of the tale between the two peoples. The effect of this is every year when you see Thanksgiving posts online about the first Thanksgiving or anything on the pilgrims who landed in 1620, inevitably, someone will comment about how the pilgrims landed, had their Thanksgiving, accepted the food from the natives, and then killed the natives. And if you listen to this podcast, you already know that isn't true. The treaty between the Wampanoag and Plymouth lasted for about 54 years. An Osemequin, or Osemequin, of the Poconokets used the friendship with the English to solidify his stance as the paramount chief over all of the Wampanoag. And at least by the mid-1620s, he had firm control over even the furthest environs of the Wampanoag world, including Nantucket, where it is recorded that he set the rules on how to divide up a beached whale between the community. It sounds like a trivial thing to bring up this early in the episode, but it will contrast greatly with the experience his son has later on. And so this episode will be the Wampanoag Antebellum, before the war, King Philip's War. This will be an episode on the forgotten period of time between our 1621 peace and our 1675 war. And so our episode begins with Osemequin at the height of his power, having turned on his traditional allies, the Massachusetts nation, in order to back the English which you can hear about in our last Wampanoag episode or the episode on the first colony at Wessagusset. And both the English and Osemequin are grateful for this friendship between their groups, as the Wampanoag were surrounded by competitors and enemies. Their traditional enemies were the Narragansett, whom they warred with in the past and often competed to subjugate smaller native nations around them in order to exact a tribute. Beyond the Narragansett, the Wampanoag were not terribly friendly with the Mohegan or the Pequot a little further to the west. And it is known in the 1620s and 30s, the Nipmuc, whose nation uh, would lay in central and western modern-day Massachusetts, 
were then enemies with the Wampanoag also. And so there was much cause for Osamequin to ally with the English. Internally, he was at his height, however. To quote the author Nathaniel Philbrick on the period of 1624 and shortly thereafter, prior to Wessagusset, Aspinet, Sachem of the Nossets, had commanded more warriors than Massasoit. But now Aspinet was dead and his people had fled in panic. Over the next few years, Massasoit emerged as the uncontested leader of the Indian nation we now refer to as the Wampanoag, an entity that may not have even existed before this crucial watershed. First thing to note here is that Osamequin is referred to as Massasoit, which meant great leader. It was a title, not so much a name. Interesting thing here is that the Pilgrim Fathers came to refer to Osamequin as Massasoit, so, if any Wampanoag were watching the exchanges between the English and the great leader, it appeared to them that the English were subservient to Osemaquin, which is something he certainly wanted them to think. The other point that Philbrick makes here is that the Wampanoag Confederacy, as being commanded by one paramount chief, a chief of chiefs over the top of everyone, might be a newish situation. If you look at the nearby Narragansett, there isn't one single paramount chief over all the Narragansett. There are several powerful chiefs who kind of have to work together to deal with an external problem. So it is quite likely that Osemaquin, chief of the Poconokets, who certainly had some influence over the Pocasset nation and the Patuxic nation, now with the friendship of the English, became more powerful than he ever was before. And now I know I'm driving this point home, and that's because this is an apex for him personally and his family. 1624, 25, 26, there are clear demonstrations of his power, which we can even see in the land sales during this period. I'm going to quote the historian David Silverman. Contrary to the assumption that land sales plunged Indians into colonial subjugation, some deeds required the English to pay tribute to the local sachem if they were joining Wampanoag society. And this early period, the 1620s and 30s, are full of deeds that are in this manner. Things will change. Now, internally, there are different Wampanoag groups who sought to distance themselves from Osemaquin, not really used to having a paramount chief over the top of them with such force about him. It's known that the Nauset and Wampanoag groups along Cape Cod very much wanted to bring themselves closer to the English and open up trade relationships with the English in order to distance themselves from Osamequin. They would do so quite successfully, subtly at first, but by the time we move into the 1650s, it'll become more and more obvious that there are large amounts of Wampanoag not part of the Wampanoag Confederacy any longer. In 1632, uh, the men at Plymouth set up a trading post at Poconoket. That would be Osamuquin's primary chiefdom. This excited him greatly and would continue his dominance in distributing English goods to the native people in the area. And often, power for a chief, a sachem, in this part of the New World came from the ability to provide for your subjects. Surplus food in times of need, but also useful trade goods coming from a long way off. The nearby Narragansett were very jealous of this relationship between the English and Osamequin. And in the same year, breaking what had been about a decade of peace, the Narragansett invaded Osamequin's Poconoket, and they took him hostage. But he managed to escape. And where did he run to? He ran to the English trading post in his hometown, asking the men there to protect him. And protect him, they did. 
until Miles Standish at Plymouth could raise a small force to chase the Narragansett back to their own lands. Soon thereafter, the Narragansett would abandon their war against Osemaquin and the Wampanoag, as the Pequot to their west were threatening their own invasion of Narragansett lands. It's likely the Narragansett wanted to get rid of Osemaquin and then establish one of their chiefs as the primary point person for English trade in the area, which would help explain why they had a very narrow goal of capturing Osemaquin and not attacking his home village in general. If you listen to season one of our podcast, you'll see a similar story with the Mohawk-Mohegan War, which was from 1624 to 28, where the Mohawk pushed out the Mohegan so that they could have access to the Dutch traders at what would become Fort Orange. Which brings us to the rest of that little Pequot episode from 1633. While they were warring or threatening to war with the Narragansett, they opened up trade relations with the Dutch of New Netherland to their west. The Narragansett, until Roger Williams shows up, was boxed in from having direct access with a European settlement for which to trade. And it is known that the Pequot killed Narragansett, who attempted to trade with the Dutch. But with this close contact came more transmission of disease. We talked about this in our previous Wampanoag episodes. The Captain Thomas Dermer, who brought Tisquantum back to New England, made a small record of the natives' own account of what happened in the late 16-teens, where a wave of some sort of contagion wiped out what he determined to be 19 out of every 20 persons, meaning only 5% of the population survived this plague. And he specifically got this information from the area around Patuxet, which would be future Plymouth, within the Wampanoag Confederacy, who seems to have been hit harder than the Narragansett and other nearby tribes. But anyway, here we are in 1633, and there is an outbreak of smallpox, which rages through the entire north portion of the continent. And this is when we see recorded that natives were seeking baptism, or Christian rituals, or even doing enough to be considered converted. To the natives, these Christian rituals were often seen as akin to their own healing rituals. And just the knowledge that if you do A, B, and C, the Christian God might save your eternal soul. Well, okay, I'll go ahead and do that, especially if I'm on my deathbed. But what this began in earnest was the slow process of natives in New England, especially the Wampanoag, converting to Christianity, especially along Cape Cod. The secondary effect of this, as I brought up before, is that now Christian Wampanoag and Nauset peoples on Cape Cod had a religious affinity with the English and further distanced themselves from Osamaquin, from the traditional Wampanoag with their traditional beliefs. And with Christian conversion came better treatment from the English and more access to their society as a whole. However, this plague lasted through the year 1634, or there was another wave of a very similar strain of smallpox all the way through that year. The on-again, off-again governor of Plymouth, William Bradford, he recorded that the smallpox sores would cling to the mats that the Wampanoag would lay on. And when the sick Wampanoag would turn, their sores would flay off their bodies. Ultimately, Bradford recorded that they die like rotten sheep. Just some of the horrors of the 17th century we don't have to interface very often, but when I get a quote like that, I have to read it. But just to lighten the mood, in the same year, 1634, in a very curious event that people are still kind of debating the actual meaning or context of, 
Plymouth settler Edward Winslow traveled to the area that's now Connecticut. Winslow had long been a friend of Osamaquin, and once about 10 years before, Osamaquin was on his deathbed suffering from some disease along with most of his settlement. Edward Winslow showed up and nursed the whole place back to health, which included cleaning out Osamaquin's mouth, showing great friendship in a time when the Wampanoag were particularly vulnerable. But while Winslow is gone, Osamaquin shows up at Plymouth and he tells everyone that Edward Winslow has been murdered. Winslow returns to Plymouth to find everyone's mourning his death, which of course led Edward Winslow to ask his friend Osamaquin, why did you lie to everybody about me being dead? The chief told Winslow that he lied about his death so that the people of Plymouth would better appreciate him and give him a grand welcome upon his return. Now, this is just a perplexing little episode here, because was this Osamaquin's sense of humor? If so, we really don't see this at other points in his life. Was this an echo of some kind of Wampanoag ritual that kind of lost its meaning in translation? Maybe, but we don't really have that ritual recorded. Um, at the end of the day, maybe Osamaquin was just bored and wanted to mess with people. I get like that all the time. I know people who think I have an English accent just because when I met them, I was doing an English accent. And so take from that story what you will. But let's return to something more logical that Osemaquin undertakes. In 1636, if you listen to our episode on Roger Williams, you'll know that he is expelled from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Williams had a previous friendship with Osemaquin, And so when Williams was cast out in the middle of the winter, sick, it was the Wampanoag who secretly took him in. In the spring, Osemaquin gives Roger Williams a plot of land on the eastern side of Narragansett Bay. Now, this might be the very first inkling of troubles between the Wampanoag and the people of Plymouth, because the authorities in Plymouth claim that that chunk of land fell within their domain, having previously been sold to them from the Wampanoag. This Osemaquin was seemingly unaware of. But we aren't in a time of war yet. Instead, what Osemaquin does is that he resettles Roger Williams on the other side of the bay, on the edge of Narragansett territory, in a little settlement that'll one day be called Providence. By doing this, Osemaquin gave the Narragansett direct access to a European and a European trader because Roger Williams will be running a trading post. He also started a little tiny English settlement between him and his traditional enemies. And so he extended an olive branch, but also kept them at arm's reach. No long would this area be a no man's land between the two tribal groups. Williams often served as the intermediary between the Wampanoag and the Narragansett, and often one of those groups and the English at Plymouth and Massachusetts, which jumping off from our first two episodes, once again demonstrates that Osamaquin, in many of his decisions, expands his power without resorting to violence or outright warfare. If you compare him to so many other native leaders that we've learned about in this podcast, you'll notice that he'll use the threat of violence, often from a third party like the English, to convince natives to fall under his authority or leave him alone, or even become his friend. He has a gentleness about him that you don't see often in the 17th century, which brings us right into 1636, 37, 38. The Wampanoag stay out of, for the most part, the Pequot War, which would be a great opportunity to demonstrate their allyship with the English by warring with the Pequot 
but the Wampanoag by and large did not. But what concerned Osamaquin was that Uncas, the great chief of the Mohegan, did participate in that war on the side of the English. And so by the end of the war, Uncas is incredibly powerful. He's taken many of the Pequot captives to assimilate into his own nation and has solidified a friendship with the English, one that from this point forward will rival Osemaquin's relationship with the English. This would be probably the first example for the natives of New England to witness European-style warfare on a scale greater than that of a native skirmish. Now, during the Pequot War, the attack on Fort Mystic was an exercise in total war. Everyone who could be killed in the fort, men, women, and children, older folks, were killed. Now, natives often, like Uncas, wanted to take captives because it would only enrich their own society upon assimilation. A complete war like this was very unheard of in New England and seemed unnecessary, wasteful, tragic. Osamaquin probably thought back to the 1620s when he informed the Plymouth settlers about the plot against the English at the Wessagusset Company and Miles Standish and his march to the north when he arrived at Wessagusset in a surprise attack to slaughter the native leaders there. This was just a handful of Englishmen who accomplished this. Now here we are in the 1630s. Osamaquin is hearing reports of what a couple hundred Englishmen are capable of. Perhaps now he was sensing the turning of the tide. Not a coincidence, in 1638, the Wampanoag are hearing rumors that the Massachusetts Bay Colony intends to go to war, which gave cause for Osamaquin to very quickly gather together a collection of fur pelts that he then brought to Boston as a gift and an opportunity to ask Governor Winthrop what was going on. Winthrop denied the rumor. Such rumors in the head of another sachem might have been cause for raising up a war party, but not Osamaquin. He seems to be writing his own rulebook. And as a lot of his power derived from his friendship with the English, he had to maintain it. In the same year, Osamaquin was quite angered by the Narragansett, who continuously tried to trade within Wampanoag territory with Englishmen from Plymouth. Roger Williams being great and all, but different English traders have different goods at different prices. Why not open the market up a little bit? But doing so without honoring the territorial integrity of the Wampanoag, offering some sort of gift in exchange for crossing their lands, asking for permission, any of these things were a clear violation of trust. In one specific incident, there was a Nipmuc man who was trading in Wampanoag territories with Plymouth Englishmen. This member of the Nipmuc was killed by Arthur Peach and his gang, the Peach Gang. Plymouth authorities sought to punish the English Arthur Peach for the death of this Nipmuc man. Osamaquin argued that there should be no punishment for killing a Nipmuc, claiming that the dead man, by birth, a Nipmuc man, and not as worthy another man, should die for him. From this quote, it's quite clear that Osemaquin, his personal power, the power of his confederacy and his people and his territorial integrity far outweighed any sort of kinship he felt for a Native American of a different nation, directly stating that killing a Nipmuc man was not worth punishing somebody over. Whether he actually believed that or not is one thing. The fact is he said it and wanted someone to believe that is how he felt. And while he appears to have had no pan-native 
sense of unity, especially against the English, there were sachems in New England who did. And this goes back all the way before the, the Plymouth settlers actually landed. If you remember the story of Epinal or the Massachusetts tribe against the Wessagusa settlement or Chief Corbidon's challenge of Osemaquin, the idea that there should be a general coalition of all native groups in the area to push out the English had simmered for a very, very long time. But after the Pequot War, the demographic reality became very clear. There were more and more English coming, and they were making babies, and that they were very hungry for land. The Sachem Ninigret of the Niantic, Ninigret's family was deeply ingrained with the Sachems of the Narragansett, especially the family of Mayantanomo, from the late 1630s on, began a quiet campaign for a general uprising against the English. We're going to just let that simmer in the background of our story until it boils over in our next episode. And yet in the same year, Osemaquin goes to the general court of Plymouth to pledge his renewed friendship with the English. And in the 1639 agreement, he agreed to not sell land to any other Englishman except for those approved by the Plymouth government. This is important to the people of Plymouth because they're not the only Englishmen in the game anymore, right? You have Massachusetts to the north. You have Roger Williams now at Providence. And then on the actual island of Rhode Island, you have Portsmouth and Newport. But further to the west, you have the new New Haven colony, freshly founded. You have the Connecticut colony. You even at this time have the Saybrook colony. Plymouth was not the only game in town. And in some ways, they were concerned about the expansion of other English colonies as much as natives were concerned about the expansion of the English in general. The interesting thing about this agreement is that Osemaquin brought his oldest son with him to also be party to the agreement as he was the rising star within the Wampanoag Confederacy. His name was Wamsutta. As Osemaquin was pushing 60, Wamsutta and his younger brother would slowly take over their father's responsibilities. A smooth transition of power. But one has to wonder how smooth it actually was. As Osemaquin witnessed the Wampanoag on Cape Cod and on Martha's Vineyard and then later on Nantucket take to Christian conversion and an allyship with the English there, no longer requiring authority from him. And in between 1640 to 1642, Osemaquin sells a lot of the Wampanoag lands off to the Plymouth settlers, but so do other Wampanoag who no longer seem to defer to Osamaquin's power in order to make such a decision. One name that has come down to us through history specifically is a Wampanoag by the name of Pawampamunit, who made a living speculating on native land sales. He would buy land from other natives and then flip it to the English for a profit. And again, with more English in closer proximity came more plagues. On Martha's Vineyard, the Native American Hayakums asked Thomas Mayhew for instruction on how to convert to Christianity. And when the plague swept through the island, himself and his relatives, the Hayakum's family, did not suffer the same devastating effects. Hayakum credited the Manito of Jesus with his protection and the protection of his loved ones. And this began one of the more successful conversion efforts in all along the North American coastline, not just in New England. And over the decades to come, these island Wampanoag on Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard crafted a new identity all of their own. 
and that identity had nothing to do with the family of Osamaquin on the mainland. And other than the land sales that we already talked about, what is going on on the mainland in the 1640s? While those original Plymouth settlers who made the treaty with Osamaquin in 1621, they are aging. They are beginning to die off. And so are the natives who were there for that agreement. One in particular uh, is Habamak, who lived with Miles Standish until Habamak died in 1642. Habamak was kind of like a successor to Tisquantum, being a liaison between the two groups. And so that old link between the two peoples passes away. And for the next couple years, Roger Williams in Rhode Island uh, is reporting increasingly about rumors, fears, and plots that the natives of southern New England have against the English, whom they very clearly see as a growing group of people hungry for resources. The English, for their part, notice that the natives of southern New England have more guns than they've ever had before, and they're not being traded by the English to the natives necessarily, because a lot of these guns are of Dutch or French origin, which the Dutch in New Netherland and the French in New France would always deny. But even in archaeological sites of various native settlements during this century, we find gun parts every now and then. And some of those parts are very easily traced back to the Dutch and the French. But still, these various Native American groups have no unity between them. There will be no coalition. The Narragansett throughout the 1640s and 50s were constantly trying to woo the Wampanoag into some sort of alliance, either as rumor has it against the English and or more directly against Uncas of the Mohegans. In one example of this back and forth negotiation, in 1644, the Narragansetts deliver the head of a Mohegan to Osemaquin to ask for his support against Uncas. He delivers the head to Plymouth authorities, declaring his unity with the English and their allies, who of course would be Uncas. In doing this, he denied the Narragansett without causing a war between their two groups, while also confirming the chain of allyship between the Wampanoag and the English, and acknowledging that that chain extends out to the Mohegan. No general uprising to be had at this time. And in fact, Osemaquin seems to still get some benefit from this relationship with the English, because although the island Wampanoag and the Cape Wampanoag were pulling away from him, sometime during the 1640s, the Nipmucks, at least for a while, became tributaries of Osemaquin and his Wampanoag. And he even had them go to Boston and submit their loyalty to the English, and specifically the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Thus, we tie together the Nipmucks to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, to the Wampanoag, to the Plymouth Colony, to the Mohegan. Meanwhile, the lone but very powerful Narragansett and the very small tribes around them who are allied with the Narragansett had a deep friendship with the Rhode Island Colony were too mixed up in the 1640s and 50s to have a general war based upon notions of ethnicity. But moving into the year 1646, just as Habamak had died and cut that link between the two peoples, the great Edward Winslow goes back to England and never returns. A loss of a great ally. This is the man who I mentioned before cleaned out the sick mouth of Osemaquin a few decades previously, when his people were going through a great plague. We will soon be entering an era where Edward Winslow's son, 
and Osemaquin's son will forge a very different relationship. And the dynamics of this next generation really comes to fruition in the 1650s, as the furs become more and more scarce, as well as the available land. The English settlements grew closer and closer to the Wampanoag settlements. English livestock, who the English often refused to pen up, would trample native crops. The Wampanoag would sometimes kill livestock they found out in the wild, as they would any animal you would find out in the wild on your land. And between the destroyed animals and the destroyed crops, this caused a lot of friction between the English and the Wampanoag. And in the waning years of Osemaquin's reign, we see one final curious move by Osemaquin that is worthy of note. Although the land sales continued, toward the end of his life, he tried to insert a clause in these sales forbidding the further conversion of natives to Christianity as part of the deeds. The Plymouth colony denied this clause and the issue never came up again. It is interesting, though, because it brings up his mindset later in life. Whereas we've known that although the pilgrims have been deeply religious and have been the deepest of friends with Osemaquin for going on 40 years, Osemaquin never took to Christianity. He never wanted to become Christian. And moving into the generation of his children, his family will come to symbolize and lead the faction of natives who want to cling to traditional ways, traditional beliefs, in a way that Osemaquin himself never really represented. In fact, he was always the guy on the leading edge. He was the one who wanted to cooperate with the English and the native leader who most reaped the benefits of this relationship, uh, with exception of perhaps Uncas of the Mohegan. So now we're entering the era of his children and the children of the Plymouth settlers of 1620-21. Osemaquin's two sons came to Plymouth one day. The oldest one was known as Wamsuta or Wamsuta. The younger one, there's some debate on, but sometimes he's referred to as Pometicum. Sometimes he's known as Medicament. And then simply Medicom becomes quite common. These two men requested that the people of Plymouth give them English names that they would become known by as they were becoming leaders of the Wampanoag and thus would have to converse with the English more often, clearly announcing that they were ascending to power over their older father, who could now serve as an elder statesman without the day-to-day -day stresses. So the older sibling, Wamsuta, was given the name Alexander, after, of course, Alexander the Great. Whereas the younger sibling, Medicom, or Medicomet, he was given the name Philip, the lesser-known father of Alexander the Great. Some historians have speculated that these names were meant to taunt the Wampanoag, giving them these lofty names from Western history, when in fact they were petty kings. Nowhere near the status of the great Macedonian kings of old, but also too ignorant to even understand that they were being made fun of or patronized. This might be possible, although if you look through the Plymouth records and the, the various journals of the time, nobody mentions this intention. What is interesting here, and probably at least more direct and more likely, is that these two Wampanoag leaders were given names of, yes, somebody from Western history, but that were specifically non-Christian, non-Judeo-Christian. They weren't from the Bible, clearly signifying that neither Alexander nor Philip, just like their historical namesakes, were not Christian. Within their own societies, it's likely that the names Pometicomet and Wemsuda were fairly new monikers for the two men as they likely changed their names upon assuming power over the Wampanoag that had been ceded by their father. And we at least know that Wamsuda's original name was Moanum, 
Now, if you remember our last episode on the Wampanoag, there was a leadership crisis in the 1620s where one of the rivals to Osamequin, the great Corbitant, challenged Osamequin in his relationship with the English. And in the struggle for power, there was a brief attempt at what you would call a coup. How it was resolved was a marriage contract, an agreement that the children of Osamequin would marry the children of Corbitant. Very common in Algonquian societies, tying the ruling class together. The most significant of these spouses would be the spouse of King Alexander. Corbitant's oldest daughter, Nawampun, and I know I'm saying that wrong, took the new name Witimo, signifying her change in status. And when Corbitant died, she became the Sangsqua, or the female sachem of the Pakaset nation, a powerful woman in her own right, without having married King Alexander. The king's younger brother, Philip, married Witimo's younger sister, and thus again taking a rift in the 1620s, turning it around and further cementing a unity of leadership among the Wampanoag. And so now we see the generation of Osemequin's children grown up, married, and assuming power. And so from now on, instead of referring to them by their native names, I'll probably be using Alexander and Philip more often than Wamsuta and Pometicamat, as they themselves made it clear when they walked into Plymouth and requested English names that this is how they want to be known to the English-speaking world. And so I will acquiesce to their wishes. It's clear that King Alexander took over from his father in 1657. Now, if you're very learned in Algonquian societies, you might find it curious that the power passed between a father to a son, which isn't unheard of, but isn't normally the preference, right? So normally, and we'll see this mostly documented among the Powhatan to the south of the Wampanoag, you'll see power go from a brother to a brother to a brother. And then when the brothers run out, the oldest son of the oldest sister would then take the reins. And if no sons are to be found, sometimes the power would pass to a female leader like we just saw, all through a matrilineal line. Father to son, not unheard of, but not terribly common. Well, if you remember the account from Thomas Dermer, who brought to Squantum, Squanto, back to the Wampanoag many years before, he reported on a plague that Osemequin told him about that killed, by his record, 19 out of every 20 people. Well, if the death rate from this series of plagues from 1616 to 1619 is 95%, we can get a little macabre for a second and consider your own family. Count them in multiples of 20 and then pull one survivor from the batch. Do you have any siblings left alive? It's likely that Osamequin was alone. Furthermore, as we've seen with their marriage practices, making sure that ruling class stays related to one another, King Alexander and King Philip were likely also related to the ruling class through their mother's side, and thus still able to maintain a matrilineal-based claim to power. Now, what's interesting about King Alexander, who is often overshadowed by his younger brother for reasons we'll come to see, is that he did for a while attend Harvard University. Harvard did have an Indian college, which of course would be acclimating Native Americans to the English world and English education and Christian religion, which shouldn't be confused with the later schools that we would think of in the 19th century in the United States and Canada that would take children off of reservations using various means of force and then completely trying to assimilate the youth in separation from their parents. Harvard's Indian school was a different creature with some similar goals. 
To drive this point home, the historian Lisa Brooks writes, Native students in the 17th century were not trained as a servant class, educated separately from Anglo students and forced to abandon their languages. Rather, the Harvard Indian College was designed to educate the sons of leaders who were trained alongside the sons of English clergymen and magistrates. Just as Harvard University was intended to be a way to harmonize all the clergy of New England, to be on the same page theologically, the Indian College offered an opportunity for the natives and the English to better understand each other. Now, that's a generous interpretation because, of course, with that came a heavy dose of exposure to Christian theology. And although in our quote, it mentioned Anglo students and native students learning side by side, the Indian College was a separate building on the Harvard campus. Why this is important to King Alexander, because he didn't attend Harvard for very long, is that this was at least one point of connection he had to another student of the Indian College, a man by the name of John Sassamon, who was a Wampanoag man who actually grew up in an English household where he was adopted at a very young age. In fact, for most of his life, he had known the missionary John Eliot, his birth family dying in one of the many plagues of New England. John grew up almost completely English in culture and religion. It's known that he actually attended Harvard before the Indian College existed, before the separation into Anglo classes and Indian classes. And he attended with John Eliot's son and the son of Increase Mather, the movers and shakers of English New England. And then as he grew older, he married back into Wampanoag society. And he actually married quite well because his wife was the niece of none other than King Philip and King Alexander. Now, in the best of worlds, this is exactly what the Wampanoag system and the greater Algonquian systems uh, strive to do. Unite leadership across boundaries. And given a few generations, it's all the same. Corbatant does not get along with Osemaquin. Well, their children marry, and now they're the same family, right? You have these two groups, the Wampanoag, and you have the English, who get along, but they're quite distinct. But now you have this middle group of Christian Wampanoag, this man named John Sassaman, who's friends and grew up with all the future leaders of Massachusetts and Plymouth. It is proper that he should marry into the ruling family of the Wampanoag. And in a few generations, if everything went one certain direction, everyone would be one big happy family. And yet it is John Sassaman, more than any single person, who will lay the groundwork for King Philip's war. Yes, even more than King Philip, John Sassaman drives home the long-term causes of the war and creates the medium-term causes of the war. And as we'll see in our next episode, an event involving him is actually the spark of the war. But in the meantime, John Sassaman begins working for Osemaquin's family, Alexander and Philip, as what historians would call a secretary, who would facilitate the paperwork involved in selling land, specifically to the people of Plymouth. The first record we have of him undertaking these responsibilities would be in 1657. And now with John Sassaman, you have to think, where does loyalties lie? We have a man who grew up essentially English, but is Wampanoag, married to a Wampanoag, and being employed by the Wampanoag leadership. And yet historians like Lisa Brooks, the aforementioned Lisa Brooks, refer to his land sales as dubious. And indeed, starting with John Sassman and from here on out, the land sales are more and more generous in amounts, in acreage, to the English 
and less and less generous towards the Wampanoag and the benefits they would receive for the sale of these lands. And why Sassamon is needed at all is because of the written deeds involved in these land sales need to be interpreted to Osemaquin, to Philip, to Alexander, because none of them are literate. Sassamon, as an in-law to them, acquired a cherished position that was dependent upon trust, a trust that would begin to rapidly break down, not only among the inner family of the Wampanoag leadership, but between the English and the Wampanoag, where John Sassamon lived, essentially. It's recorded in April of 1659, Widamo, the wife of King Alexander, had to sell a parcel of land to the English in order to pay off a debt that her husband owed, which caused him to be held on a bond. This underscores a new era where the English have managed to fine Wampanoag individuals for petty crimes or extend them a line of credit, which used to be illegal to do. And when that debt or that fine becomes due, the only collateral that there is to collect is a claim of land. And so again, adding to John Sassaman, the transfer of land from the Wampanoag to the English, which used to come with yearly tributes to the Wampanoag, which used to come with rights to continue hunting on the new lands that the English acquired, is now increasingly becoming involuntary because the land transfers are being spurned on by debts and fines. At least some of these were not undertaken originally in good faith, but on the anticipation that someone would default or would be unable to pay a trumped-up fine with anything other than land, which is, of course, is what they wanted in the first place. This is a hard turn in the relationship between the Wampanoag and the English, and it takes place as the new generation of each respective group takes power. Which brings me back to a comment I made in the beginning of this episode. We can't lay the sins of the future King Philip's War on the Plymouth Settlers or the Wampanoag in 1620 or 1621. As we're now 30 years in our timeline removed from that point and still have another 20 to go before we get to King Philip's War. These are judgments people often make. And just to show that I'm fair game, I'm going to correct myself from just minutes ago. It's upon the death of Osemaquin in early 1660 that Medicamet and Wamsuta go to Plymouth to receive their English names, which is recorded to have happened in June of 1660. So they didn't receive their names back in 1657, as they eclipsed their father, as I implied earlier, but it actually happened three years later. Not a terribly important thing, but I do like to highlight mistakes I make. Now, I could edit around this, but you know what? I'm going to leave it in as a little lesson to myself. And I don't think we can let Osemaquin or Osemaquin pass away without commenting on his legacy. The people of Plymouth, of course, referred to him as Massasoit, meaning great leader, which to many he was. He certainly was a great ally and friend to the English, but his legacy among his Native American neighbors might have been more mixed. I'm going to quote the author Nathaniel Philbrick here. We have been taught to think of Massasoit as a benevolent and wise leader who maintained a half-century of peace in New England. But many of the Indians who lived in the region undoubtedly had a very different attitude toward a leader whose personal prosperity depended on the systematic dismantling of their homeland. Indeed, many think that Osemaquin's paramount chieftain status only came after his allyship with the English. Others believe a more middle-road view that although he was paramount chief, once he was allied with the English, that role became emboldened by his relationship with the English. Still, there are those, perhaps Epinal on Martha's Vineyard, 
Corbatant on the mainland or his Massachusetts tribe allies to the north who felt that the English needed to be snuffed out in their infancy while few in number, starving and unknowing. And so there are a range of views and it's not my place to add in my two cents on a man's legacy. But here we are with his son being held on a bond based on a debt that his wife promptly pays with land, an arrangement Osemaquin certainly never wanted to see happen. It's known that after this event, King Alexander increased his sales of land to the Rhode Island colony, who were allies of the Narragansett and competitors of Plymouth for native lands. Alexander made it clear the favored status of Plymouth among the Wampanoag, and vice versa, was over. It is also known that during the reign of King Alexander, that he didn't often live in Wampanoag towns. And while a large part of his paramount chieftainship was peeling away into little Christian settlements with decreasing reliance upon him, the inland tributaries that his father had acquired were more or less still intact. So stable in which it's known that King Alexander tended to live among these different tributaries, including different sections and locales of the Nipmuc. And in what may have been an act of strength in competition to maintain these tributaries, it is known that King Alexander went to some kind of war with Uncas of the Mohegan around the year 1660. Little documentation uh, survives explaining the scale of this or the reasons for it, but there was some conflict between the Mohegan and the Wampanoag. What's interesting here is that they were both English allies. Now, this might signal the first move of the Wampanoag toward becoming allies with their traditional enemy, the Narragansett. Now, remember, the Narragansett this entire time is always the collective group that is most accused of plotting against the English. At least after the Pequot War, the Narragansett were always the boogeymen of the English. And it appears that in 1660, with the death of his father, with his selection of wars, the new sale of land to Rhode Island, that the realignment has begun. And again, there was a greater realignment or reorganization, reshuffle of the cards. As in the 1660s, we see a tipping point in southern New England where the English population became greater in number than the collective native population. The population of just the Plymouth colony having tripled between 1640 and 1660. And again, by 1660, you of course have a Rhode Island colony you have Plymouth, you have Massachusetts, you have Connecticut, you have the New Haven colony, a small but independent Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket colony, colonies rather, and the very small New Hampshire and Maine colonies, often falling under the domain of Massachusetts. So just taking this decade in total, that precious moment that a couple Native American leaders have sought after over the last 40 or so years, a moment when most of the Native Americans could be on the same page, united, and rid themselves of the English, honestly, that moment's already gone. We're nowhere near King Philip's War, 15 years off. But that moment where simple unity could have ridden the shores of the English horde is already over. Moving into the year 1662, we see a little bit of marital drama between King Alexander and his wife, herself a powerful squaw sachem. And this tale might be muddled by the difference of cultures and the translation and the passing of time. But it appears that in this year, 
King Alexander began selling lands that belonged to his wife's people to the Plymouth settlers, which prompted his wife to go ahead and begin selling off massive amounts of her people's lands before Alexander could do so, and thus receive the compensation over his wife. This little episode might provide a little insight into why King Alexander was not living among his own people, or could be a complete misrepresentation of what actually happened in 1662 between the couple. Because of far more importance this year would be King Alexander's continued sale of land to the Rhode Island colony, which eventually Plymouth finds great offense to and demands that Alexander makes an appearance in front of the Plymouth General Court. And in fact, they summon him. Now, to be summoned would imply that someone, whatever issuing authority, has authority over you. King Alexander would not stoop to such terms. He doesn't show at court. As you can imagine, this worries the Plymouth General Court. Furthermore, there are rumors that King Alexander has moved closer to the Narragansett in terms of his diplomatic relations, and that the two parties are plotting something against the English. A horrifying thought to the colonists, and coupled with his refusal to come in for the summons, the Plymouth court was prompted to authorize Josiah Winslow, the son of Edward Winslow, to track down King Alexander, likely a childhood friend of his, or at least acquaintance, given the relationship between their fathers. But Josiah would set a very different tone right now, as he takes 10 men and he tracks down King Alexander at a hunting camp. He puts a pistol to King Alexander's chest and demand that Alexander come with him back to the Plymouth General Court. You can contrast this with the story of his father cleaning out the sick mouth of King Alexander's father. King Alexander in this tense moment agrees to do so, given that his hunting party of about 10 braves accompany him to the general court, serving as his personal guard, which they are allowed to do. Understandably, there was a tense exchange in the general court of Plymouth. Afterwards, King Alexander stayed at Josiah Winslow's place. It was here that he fell ill, but nonetheless was well enough to travel back to his lands where he could convalesce at Mount Hope. But here he doesn't get better. And in a few days, the young King Alexander dies. Rumors spread immediately that he was poisoned by Josiah Winslow or another man of Plymouth. Not an unheard of accusation, although the English of Plymouth were not known to use poison, nor were they particularly knowledgeable in medicine, but it's not an impossibility. Other historians have hazarded to guess that King Alexander had appendicitis based on his recorded symptoms. The real reason is not terribly important, because the air has now been tainted with the accusation that the English have killed in the most cowardly fashion, the head of the Wampanoag Paramount Chieftainship. And there at Mount Hope, the Wampanoag people would mourn the death of young Alexander and then witness the ascension to power of his younger brother, Philip, who the English will now call King Philip, who soon after presents himself to Plymouth and says everything to the Plymouth authorities that they want to hear, putting all of their fears at ease. Now, some chroniclers, some historians pinpoint his very coronation as the moment when King Philip began planning his war against the English. Maybe it's possible. I'm not even going to say probable. It is possible 
that 1662 is the year Osamaquin's family, the greatest allies the Plymouth settlers ever had, made their turn. And yet there is no war. Again, many years off still. Beware of the books you read that'll present pet theories as facts. We can't know the inner workings of King Philip's mind. But being the heir now and not the spare, we can zoom out and see the world of King Philip and the challenges that lay ahead for him, challenges he never thought he would be the one having to handle. Right away in 1663, because of King Philip's perceived positive attitude towards the English in comparison to his brother anyway, Philip and the Plymouth Colony come to an agreement to put a moratorium on the sale of land, a seven-year ban on selling land, protecting King Philip's domain. The side effect of this, of course, was one of the major sources of income that King Philip had was the sale of land. The Wampanoag, unlike the natives on Long Island, were not participating in the creation of wampum, at least not to the scale the Long Island natives were. Animal skins were lower in supply than they had ever been. And so by the very next year, 1664, King Philip is selling land again. Here begins an era of desperation that King Philip can never shake after this. In the winter of 1663, King Philip asks John Eliot, the missionary, for a book so that he could learn how to read. Now here we can speculate that perhaps he's becoming suspicious of John Sassaman. And what exactly is written down in the English version of these land sales and these treaties? Also, there might be a desire in there to kind of understand the Christian Wampanoag, these people that used to be firmly under the control of his father, but now give less and less deference to himself. The island and Cape Wampanoag pretty much long since gone in every sense other than declaring their independence from the Osemaquin family, but also in general, the mainland Christian Wampanoag settlements that fell under the domain of the Plymouth colony or the Massachusetts colony, and not necessarily his own, they were so close to the non-Christian Wampanoag settlements that in the 1660s, it all started to bleed together. Certain areas that he once considered or counted on being the core of his paramount chieftainship, or at least that of his father's, Everything was obscured now, questionable. Yes, the English were his allies, but they seemed to be carrying away the very souls of his own people, which was every bit their intention. Convert them to Christianity, make them subjects of our king. His own secretary and niece's husband, John Sassaman, helped create John Eliot's first Indian Bible right around this time. This was the first Bible printed in North America. It probably became quite clear to King Philip that with the conversion of one Wampanoag, so too drained away a little bit of the control that independent native leadership had over its people, separate from English domain. Uh, so it's likely King Philip very much wanted to read and write in the English language, if for nothing else, to obtain an understanding of what was going on around him. It is known that through the year 1664, John Sassaman was still trying to teach him to read. And so we shouldn't think of King Philip as being passive during this time, or just a victim of history, because he did certainly try to acquire new skills. And the Wampanoag people in general, rather than simply selling off all of their lands and becoming a subject people, they did adapt as much as they could. It is known that during this decade, the Wampanoag took to raising hogs, much like the people of Plymouth and came to be a major competitor in the pork market 
going up in the direction of Boston, where the hungry hordes of Englishmen lived in the Massachusetts colony, a much larger colony than Plymouth would ever be. King Philip himself, at a later date, will cause some controversy when he releases his herd of hogs on none other than the aptly named Hog Island, which his family had sold away some years before. And so it was believed that he had no right to do so. But it shows that King Philip is already being defiant, which brings us into the year 1665 and the defiance of the Wampanoag on Nantucket to King Philip's rule, which really underscores the difference between his father and himself in terms of their reach of power. A Christian Wampanoag on the island in the fall of 1665, who went by the Christian name John Gibbs, spoke the forbidden name of King Philip's father, a deep curse in traditional Wampanoag society. Once this information reached the mainland, King Philip decided to make an example of the man, and he traveled to Nantucket, a place supposedly within his domain, and an island that some historians surmise 30% of the entire Wampanoag population lived in the 1660s, a significant chunk. When he arrives, he finds that the Wampanoag there refuse to give up John Gibbs. And soon afterwards, the English community on the island, they pass the hat and gather together a large sum of their own money, and they offer it to King Philip as compensation for the great insult that John Gibbs had paid him and his family. If King Philip would take the money and leave, all will be well. Unwilling to do so, the English and the Wampanoag on the island actually united against King Philip, the supposed paramount chief of the Wampanoag, and told him that he could take the money or that they would slaughter his entire party. Now, King Philip didn't bring 31% of the Wampanoag people with him to Nantucket. It would not have been a contest. He took the money and he left. This is a line in the sand moment. Literally, they might have done it in the sand. I don't know. But the Wampanoag of Nantucket, again, perhaps 30% of the Wampanoag in total, in this moment, broke away from King Philip. And we don't just infer this from this event. They reorganized themselves more in line with an English or Christian system. They would become recognized as English subjects. And believe it or not, this would serve them quite well during King Philip's War, which some people characterize as a pan-native uprising against the English. But... We can say, at least for Nantucket, goodbye. Not part of that pan-native alliance. But again, there is a tilting towards each other of the traditional enemies of the Narragansett and the Wampanoag. As the English buy up land and the natives are pushed closer and closer to their traditional enemies, the blurring of the lines between the two people that would sometimes create a lot of conflict begin to create cohesion in the 1660s. King Alexander's widow remarries a Narragansett leader. King Philip starts to absorb some of the tributaries that used to be part of the Narragansett fold. And while the Wampanoag and Narragansett begin leaning on one another, it was apparent that King Philip was quite successful in coming out on top of a crumbling leadership structure. His power slowly rose as factions, not all of them, but factions of the Narragansett began to wane and fall to his influence which would cause an episode in the year 1667 worth noting. The Squaw Sachem Quiapin, who was related and married into the family of Canonicus, an old ally of Roger Williams in the Rhode Island colony, greatly resented King Philip and his pulling away of tributaries from her to himself. She tells her relative, Ninigret, that King Philip was allying with the Dutch and French secretly to remove the English. 
knowing Ninigret, of course, would inform the English, which she did, prompting Josiah Winslow, who once took in King Alexander, to go find Philip. Much of the same manner as when they took in his brother, Philip was dragged into the court of Plymouth, where they concluded that, in fact, Ninigret was the one being deceitful, and King Philip himself blamed the Narragansett for rumors and plotting. So although he was vindicated, he was nonetheless charged 40 pounds payable to Josiah Winslow to compensate himself and the men he had to raise to go capture Philip. So here again is another example where this man was dragged into court on a rumor that ended up not being true, was found innocent, but was nonetheless fined. That fine, of course, could be paid by giving up some of your land. The abuse here is not explicit, but it's systematic and it's slow, it's measured and it's legal. Find a prominent Native American in terms of money, hard coin money that, of course, they don't have. And then collect on something they do have, something you may have wanted in the first place. Nidigret wears the marker of a liar, but it is King Philip who has to pay up. Philip sees these things. He sees the deceit. He knows what's going on. And the year 1667 is, is the year he puts his foot down on a lot of things. John Sassaman, for one example. The originator of a lot of his woes is hired by Philip to draft a will because Philip has had a son and he wants his son in the English legal system to be his recognized legal heir. But Philip, perhaps through another literate native or perhaps because he had picked up a little bit of his ABCs along the way, realized that John Sassaman did not put his son in his will as heir, John Sassaman put himself in King Philip's will as Philip's heir. When Philip discovers this, John Sassaman runs away, back to the praying towns, where he continues to find employment as a schoolmaster. It's interesting to note that even though these praying towns, many are Wampanoag in culture, John Sassaman is essentially safe from the paramount chief, King Philip, at least for now. And again, we go back to the old historian's question, when did King Philip begin plotting his war? There are those who put it at or around this moment in 1667, because what follows is an unsustainable amount of land sales. Whereas you covered the period 1650 to 1659, the Wampanoag sold 14 separate chunks of land that were registered at the Plymouth General Court. But moving into this period, up to the period of the beginning of the actual war, 1675, you're looking at 70-something deeds. Yes, despite the removal of John Sassaman, despite the exposure of the double dealing and the wrong deals and the favoritism towards the English, King Philip starts selling land like it's milk about to spoil, which, as many have noted, seems to be completely inconsistent with what his goals would be at this point in time, where his mind would be. One explanation for this uptick in sales is that the plot against the English had already begun. And in fact, King Philip was selling land in order to gather resources to fight a war to regain all that land. And optimistically, more as they push the English square off the continent, which nicely segues right into 1671 when many New Englanders become afraid of rumors that the Wampanoag and the Narragansett had allied with one another and were preparing to attack the English. Not exactly baseless, there are numerous reports of Native Americans arming themselves, putting on their war paint, 
traveling about and congregating in war parties. The historian David Silverman says of these rumors, Dismissing the Wampanoag war scares as self-interested English overreactions discounts the patterns of natives making verbal and military threats. Further elaborating on uh, Dr. Silverman's point here, sometimes a threat or rumor of a Native American uprising can be used by the English for new opportunities, new land seizures, new forms of tribute or acts of submission. But not every rumor is manufactured by an Englishman for his gain, as this example from 1671 will demonstrate, at least partially. So King Philip is summoned to the court of Plymouth. Yet again, we see a summons. And yet again, he does not want to go. The great Roger Williams of Rhode Island fame actually offers himself up as hostage to King Philip, wherein he would hand himself over to the Wampanoag if King Philip would only go to the court in Plymouth. Philip decided to handle the matter in his own fashion, and instead of going to Plymouth, he went to Massachusetts where he visited John Eliot, and the two further went to the Massachusetts General Court, where in Massachusetts, at least partially, agreed with King Philip that Plymouth had been treating him like a subordinate rather than an ally and a longtime friend. What this would lead to would be a conference set up between Plymouth and Philip with observers from Massachusetts and Connecticut. In other words, a conclave of the Puritan New England Confederacy. In their April conference, King Philip admits that, yes, he had been plotting against the English. This is a, a big moment in a complete reversal from the treaty his father made with the Plymouth settlers 50 years before. But Philip also agrees to lay down his arms and turn in his weapons to the authorities in Plymouth. Furthermore, all of the Native Americans living in the praying towns that would fall within the bounds of the Plymouth colony they disassociate officially from King Philip, and they pledge their loyalty to the Plymouth Colony. These praying towns at the time collectively contained thousands of Native Americans, many of them Wampanoag. We already know that he lost Nantucket. Philip now had a rump state of what his brother had, and certainly what his father had. Nevertheless, the man hands over a couple guns. But overall, based on what the English came away from that conference uh, with the idea of, ideally, the entire Wampanoag Confederacy that remained under Philip would disarm themselves and give their guns over to Plymouth authorities. That did not happen. Philip's immediate entourage at the conference did give up their guns. And then some guns did come trickling in from King Philip's specific sachemship. That is, from the Poconoket Nation of the larger Wampanoag Confederacy. When questioned about the lack of incoming guns to Plymouth, Philip argued that that's what the agreement was, that his immediate party would give up their guns and then his people would give up their guns, his people being the Poconokets. The Plymouth authorities, feeling rather emboldened at this point, they do not accept this explanation or this interpretation of what happened in April. And so in September of 1671, he's dragged back into the court of Plymouth, wherein for failure of living up to his half of the agreement, he was fined a hundred pounds and made to give a yearly tribute. Now, the Native Americans understood tribute well. It was part of their culture for a very long time, long before the English ever showed up, wherein giving tribute was a very real, tangible, material sign of your subordinance to a higher power. 
which did not have to be eternal. Of course, it was changeable with the situation, dissolvable, but nonetheless, in that moment, it was a way of acknowledging that another group had the role of an older brother over you, the role of a father over you, depending on the culture, or they were the group that you went to for protection, or they were the group that subdued you at one point. With the institution of this fine and this tribute, Philip had to agree that all of the Wampanoag were subject to Plymouth Colony, which would include himself and his people and all of the non-Christian Wampanoag who remained. I have written on my note cards here that this is the point of no return. If King Philip had not already been planning an uprising against the English, now he certainly was. Because with his submission and his subordination to the court of Plymouth, it meant that they could institute fines on him. Fines that he would have to pay. It would no longer be a negotiation. And of course, this first 100-pound fine could only be paid in land. It's the only asset that King Philip had that the Plymouth court would accept. But this extended far beyond Philip now, because since King Philip submitted to the Plymouth court, they recognized him as the leader of the non-Christian Wampanoag. And with the submission of the Christian Wampanoag, the Plymouth court found it within their power to assume greater and more direct control over the Wampanoag people as a whole. If all their leaders were subservient to Plymouth, well, now Plymouth can dictate who their leaders are. And in the 1670s, we see that Plymouth reserves the power to approve or deny, in other words, recognize the validity of who is the sachem of a specific Wampanoag settlement. In other words, they could designate a willing party to be the sachem of a specific Wampanoag nation and then purchase large tracts of land in sweetheart deals from that sachem. And I'm doing air quotes here. All a wealthy party in Plymouth needed was one quizzling from among a settlement of Wampanoag who would be willing to sell away his people's land. Then they would have that quizzling recognized as the sachem. And then they could make the land sale. Now we have fully turned, folks. Still in the year 1671, what if you can't get a Quisling? What if the natives are not being cooperative? Well, the Squasachum of the Asinet Nation, part of the Wampanoag Confederacy, unlike Philip, unlike the Christian Wampanoag, did not spend 1671 constantly displaying their submission to Plymouth. As such, a 100-man militia of Plymouth invaded the land of the Asinet and confronted the Squasachum, claiming that she was standing out against Plymouth. Which, if we really break down that phrase, it doesn't mean that she was being aggressive or threatening towards the Plymouth colony. Standing out actually means not submitting to Plymouth, not agreeing to generous sales of land. As such, she was given one month to appear in front of the Plymouth court, which this time she did, where she promised a peace between the two people, and then, like the other groups, submitted herself to the authority of Plymouth. I believe she was used as an example because what's being clearly demonstrated here is you can submit to the Plymouth Colony or we're going to make you submit to the Plymouth Colony. And so finishing off this episode, from 1671 on, the relations between the English and the Wampanoag carry a very different tone where we started this episode with friendship, allies, mutual benefits, trade, cooperation and safety. Now we have submission, dubious land sales, 
tributes and fines only payable in land as the native americans have no store of hard coin and taken cumulatively the complete move of the wampanoag from neighbors and allies of plymouth to a second underclass within the plymouth colony just to skip ahead here to 1673 the court of plymouth bans natives from visiting when the general court is in session long gone are the days of samoset when he could just visit the lonely 100 or so Plymouth settlers, or the days of Tusquantum or Habamak, who are welcome to live among the Plymouth settlers, the Wampanoag now have no access to the Plymouth legal system or government whatsoever. As second-class citizens, they can't even be in the vicinity of the general court when in session. And as long-winded as this episode was, I believe it sets us up perfectly for the conflict that we're going to see in our next episode, King Philip's War. Thank you for listening. If you made it through this winding, nonsensical episode, perhaps you could give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Anything less than five stars? Well, you could just keep that for yourself. That's yours. You're welcome. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Tune in next time as our Wampanoag antebellum comes to a close and one of the deadliest wars per capita in colonial American history sets the tone for European Native American relations clear into the 20th century at least. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.